Welcome to another episode of the Doctors and Dollars podcast, where we discuss health insights and wealth secrets. I'm your host, Nate Crannell, joined today by Dr. Audrey Wells. Dr. Wells is a triple board certified physician and founder of Super Sleep MD, an online platform for people with sleep apnea to get education and treatment support. She also consults with physicians, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who struggle with getting quality sleep, managing their weight, and managing their time through awellsmd.com. Welcome to the show, Dr. Wells. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. Hey, what's going well today? Oh, my goodness. Uh, so we are in the depths of winter here in Minnesota, and my uh, my sad light is out in full force in the morning because, you know, the sun's coming up at about mm, 7.30 and going down at about 4.30. So sleep medicine doc says must get that early morning light. Absolutely. It, it sounds like you're like me. The, my mood is based on the weather. You know, if the sun is shining, not a lot of wind, I'm, I, you just kind of naturally get in a pretty good mood. Cloudy, dreary, cold, windy. You just want to sit on the couch and, you know, cuddle up and, and not do anything. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think a lot of people are that way. Uh, I want to say today, my mood is going to be based on your shirt, though. That's an awesome print on your shirt. So tropical and <laughs> <laughs> summary that that's going to be my mood today. You picked up on my my little underlying thing there was uh, I knew you were in Minnesota. I'm in Iowa. We are we're bordering on the 20 degree weather today. So I felt felt like I needed to liven it up a little bit for our conversation. I love it. <laughs> it's good. Uh, you bet. So you have uh, of all the guests that have been on this show, uh, you're the first triple board certified physician. So golf clap to you there. That's that's pretty impressive. Uh, but your journey is even more unique than that. So you went to Michigan for for medical school, but triple board certified, not just three certifications. You did it from three different universities. Uh, yeah, you're Washington right. Washington University and... for Pediatrics, University of New Mexico. <laughs> like that's just, that's wild. Yeah, it is. You know, I, uh, University of New Mexico actually has one of the best sleep medicine programs in the country. So I was really happy to do my training there. Uh, I'm also trained in pediatric pulmonary medicine, but throughout my career, most of my practice has been in working with adults. However, I like to say that my pediatric training is entirely relevant because in the context of sleep deprivation, every single one of us is reduced to a tantruming toddler. Sleep is that important. What attracted you to pediatrics? You went to Washington University in, in St. Louis for pediatrics. What attracted you first there? And then I'll ask what, what then shifted your focus to? sleep? Pediatrics was kind of a draw for me because I really liked it that I could always get behind the health of my patient who would, would be the kid and sort of advocate for my patients uh, mm -hmm. to get better health. I also kind of liked it that there weren't any sort of self-imposed uh, medical conditions resulting from uh, lifestyle choices and things like that. So I went into peds primarily for those two reasons, and uh, ended up specializing in pediatric pulmonary medicine because I really liked the uh, breathing dynamics. I liked the measurements and the treatments, you know, making kids with asthma better was really fun. And then you had the cystic fibrosis population, which is more challenging, but also involves multiple organ systems. And that's really how I got introduced into sleep medicine was through the pulmonary aspect of my training. Because as you might know, one of the major sleep conditions is obstructive sleep apnea, which I like to characterize as a breathing disorder 
even more than a sleep disorder. As you had the excitement, you know, working on kids in the pulmonary space with asthma, that, that had to be really rewarding. Was there a specific event or something that caused you to say, hey, the sleeping disorder or sleeping events that are happening that I'm seeing with pediatrics, you know, obviously extends clear out into adulthood. What Was there an, a specific event that said, hey, I'm going to truly shift my focus in my career solely on, into sleep and, and this space? There's probably two components that went into that. Uh, one was my fellowship training in pediatric pulmonary uh, medicine was very heavily ICU based because at the time, uh, St. Louis Children's Hospital was one of the most common places for pediatric lung transplant. And what I noticed was that uh, in rounding in the ICU and even in on the clinical floors of the hospital, there would be a very frequent complaint about sleep. And I think that just goes with being in the hospital, right? There's this idea that um, you're being monitored so closely that it's actually interrupting a process that's really conducive for healing, which is getting normal sleep. So that always kind of bothered me a bit that, you know, those two seemed um, to antagonize each other, being in the hospital and not getting sleep. Then the other thing that happened was I was at a conference, I think it was in Toronto. So don't forget, there's a whole country above us with a higher latitude and even less sun than we have uh, right now. But uh, I was in a, at a conference and I and they was also sleep. Yes, yes. Uh, I was doing a full day of uh, training in cystic fibrosis and just kind of getting up to speed with the latest literature. And ironically, I was falling asleep in the cold, dark uh, lecture hall. So I got up to walk around a little bit and try to really uh, get with the program and learn something. Anyway, I was walking around and I saw another full day conference in sleep medicine. And it kind of blew my mind a little bit because I had some little bit awareness of sleep medicine as a specialty. But when I read the topics on the billboard outside of the room, I'm like, you know, this, this is really interesting to me. This resonates. So I ended up switching, going into that room and staying the rest of the day. And that's when... My eyes were opened. I guess you could say I was woke to the idea of sleep medicine. And I ended up pursuing a uh, subspecialty fellowship in sleep medicine. And the rest is history. You don't have to name drop the conference that, that made you fall asleep. But do you feel like there's some sort of like destiny that you, that you were at this conference that was making you dreary? And then the other one happened to just be right next to it. And it completely sh shifted the, the trajectory of your career. You know, I have always thought of myself as a pretty lucky person overall. So, you know, things like this, I feel like just happened to me. I'm presented with choices and then it it becomes clear which path I should take. And this is a great example of that. You know, I really felt drawn to sleep medicine as a field. And when I think about it, it had some commonalities with how I felt in choosing pediatrics as a specialty. In other words, you know, I felt like I could always get behind my patient uh, to help them to sleep more, improve their sleep habits, get more quality sleep. And I really felt like it was a sort of holistic approach to a person's health. And I was craving that at that point in my uh, career. So I was very happy to train in sleep medicine. I've practiced uh, for more than a decade and a half 
And at this point, I can very comfortably say that my expertise is very robust with sleep medicine. I also noticed after a while that you know, it would be helpful to learn more about obesity medicine. And so I went and got board trained and board certified in obesity medicine. And you might imagine there's a lot of overlap between people who struggle with the disease of obesity and people who struggle with obstructive sleep apnea. And so now I'm sort of uniquely qualified to handle both of those conditions existing and antagonizing the same person. Yeah, you literally answered my next question, which, which was, hey, you, you then shifted, you went to New Mexico for sleep medicine, but then you also went to Columbia University for obesity medicine. I'm sure that was by by design, and there's got to be some correlation between those two. And so you really just answered that, but let's expand on that a little bit more. There is the, uh, there, there's obviously the direct correlation then between obesity with uh, sleep issues. Uh, when did you kind of recognize that? Obviously you did as you went to Columbia to get that third uh, certification. But when did you recognize that that's an issue? And then what, what was your thought process in saying, okay, I want to do something about this because there is this correlation between sleep and obesity? Yeah, I, I want to clarify that I did my obesity medicine training during the pandemic. So I had the luxury of this online uh, training experience, which was great. And nice. that allowed me to kind of stay present with my family. And it was it was a fantastic uh, fellowship. I really came at it from the idea of looking at my favorite kind of patient, which is somebody who really wants to feel better who's looking at their whole life broadly to try to improve their health. And when I think of you know interacting with somebody who wants to eat better, they want to move better, and they want to sleep better, those are really the three things we need to do as human beings. And so I wanted to get that extra experience in helping people to transform. That's the kind of uh, motivation that I like to see from my patients. And so the obesity medicine specialty just rounded that out so that I could address everything under the eat, move, sleep umbrella. Absolutely. There's that holy trinity, right? Of, of good eating, good exercise, and good sleep. And so to be able to sit down and talk with a patient who may be doing, you know, of those three things, they're doing one well. Maybe they are uh, exercising well, but they're eating terribly, uh, or they're sleeping well, but then they're not eating very well. And so understanding all three together to sit down with someone who who needs coaching or guidance in one of the others, I think is a very powerful combination that you've created for yourself. I love it. You know, I, I think a lot of people are motivated in this way and just need a little help to outline a strategy for getting to the next step and the next and the next. And, you know, whenever somebody is not having enough sleep or not having enough high quality sleep, that plan, that uh, motivation, that drive is typically eroded because without good sleep, we simply aren't operating with our best brain. We've talked about this before. Sleep is food for your brain. Uh, exactly. We ingest food for our body and our wellness, but like sleep is food for the brain. It's your biggest asset. I used to not really care. I used to be that guy, Audrey, that would say, I function just fine on five hours of sleep. Like I, I can totally get everything done that I need to on five hours. And then as I uh, started running more businesses and having employees and things like that, I very quickly recognized I need more than five hours of sleep. So is let's talk about super sleep MD, because I think this is super important. Uh, no pun intended. 
the ultimate goal there is to provide education and, and treatment support for patients with sleep apnea or those who struggle with sleep. Is, is that really the ultimate goal of, of that venture with sleep, uh, Super Sleep MD? Yeah, one of the problems I was seeing uh, behind the doors of my sleep medicine clinic was that, you know, obstructive sleep apnea and insomnia are kind of the bread and butter of sleep medicine. However, there's a couple of problems with that. One is that oftentimes the two conditions coexist in the same person, which makes for a really complicated picture because the treatment for sleep apnea can make insomnia worse or having insomnia makes it difficult to use uh, the treatment for sleep apnea, which is typically CPAP. So these patients were not getting enough attention, they weren't getting enough education, and they weren't getting enough support inside the medical delivery system. And so what I did with Super Sleep MD is to create a different way where someone who is struggling with obstructive sleep apnea and insomnia could sort of get the high touch help that they needed to get both conditions treated, or even if it was just sleep apnea, to get that treated in a way that was more effective than seeing me in a clinic every three months or so for just 20 minutes at a time. So adherence rates for CPAP treatment, which is the gold standard for obstructive sleep apnea, is very low. So 40% are using CPAP at the minimum four-hour level. But it, to really maximize the health benefits, you need to use it for the entire sleep period, not just four hours. And only about 20% of CPAP users are able to get to that point. So that bothered me a lot because what good is it to diagnose a bunch of people with obstructive sleep apnea and not be able to follow through and support them in getting good treatment? A lot of people don't actually know that there's alternatives to CPAP treatment that need to be sort of tailored to each individual and what they want out of their lifestyle, which includes sleep. And so the education platform is there on Super Sleep MD. I do group coaching experiences. Uh, I have online courses where people can take the information in, in more bite-sized chunks and apply it to their life, which I think is a much better model than kind of trying to condense everything into a very short clinic appointment. The Physicians Financial Summit is coming to Chicago in 2024. Now, the Physicians Financial Summit is probably exactly the opposite of what you think it is. I'm sure you've gotten a free dinner and went to an event where a financial advisor shared a few things and tips and tricks. That's not what this is. You're not going to get a free dinner, unfortunately, and we are not financial advisors. This is going to be an action-packed two days where we break down the exact playbook that I use that allowed me to retire at the age of 33 and is going to guarantee that you are prepared and ready for a prosperous retirement. Now, there's way too much info that I can cover in this video, but I will promise you two things. One, this is going to change your life forever. And two, we are going to make this much simpler than you realize was possible. Just like you break down important and complicated medical stuff for us as patients, we're going to do the same for you. So if talking about money would make you want to pull your hair out, this is not the event for you. But if you want to see behind the scenes of how the wealthy prepare their financial futures and what you can do to be better prepared financially, then we will see you there in March 2024, Chicago. That's fantastic. So what I'm hearing you say is that the typical experience for someone who's having trouble sleeping 
go to their clinician, get diagnosed with, with sleep apnea, get the CPAP machine as a treatment, which is, you said is kind of the gold standard of their treatment. But then there, the, the gap there was that there was a lack of education on how to use the CPAP, how to maintain using it for the entire duration of sleep, or what are some different ways to use it correctly so that you are getting the quality sleep that you need. Is that kind of what I'm hearing as far as that's where Super Sleep MD derived from is that the, that the patient experience wasn't going very well. And that's why those, that 40% number and even that 20% number you mentioned happened. Uh, is that kind of where that birthed from then? I think it's part of why the the adherence rates are low. People get a lot of information when they're diagnosed with sleep apnea. And because sleep issues, getting enough sleep, uh, maintaining a regular sleep schedule, those are incredibly pervasive in our society. So normally people have issues with that at baseline and then you add a sleep medicine diagnosis on top of that and you're really dealing with a complicated picture and the problem is that when you get this diagnosis it's like drinking from a fire hydrant there's a lot coming at you now you have to bring a medical machine into your home where it lives on your bedside and there's a lot of uh, emotions and preconceived notions about about that all by itself, but also, you know, when things don't go well, how do I troubleshoot this? How can I make this better? What, is, how much do I really need to clean my mask or my machine? What can I expect in terms of feeling better? How, how long is that going to take? So there's a lot that can go wrong actually after a prescription for CPAP is delivered. And the studies are very clear that if there's not a a degree of adherence reached in that first month after treatment is prescribed, the long-term adherence rates just fall off a cliff. So I really didn't feel like I was contributing to long, long-term success of sleep apnea treatment in the current medical delivery model. So I wanted to bring something different to the table where people could just access material that was going to be applicable and relevant to them for the long term. And, you know, it, it really occurred to me based on how many times I repeat myself that this would be uh, a workable way to go about things. You know, I repeat myself a lot, <laughs> but saying it and, and receiving it are two different things. So just having material like that to go back to for reinforcement, I think has been really helpful. And I've gotten great feedback from the people who've gone through my program. Excellent. How much as you're providing the CPAP education, uh, that treatment support that comes with that, how much in parallel is there education or conversations in that coaching around dietary changes? How often are you addressing the obesity medicine part of, of what it is that you do? Because that is a kind of a delicate topic, right? Where it's like, hey, you have the CPAP, you see someone that's overweight, you're coaching them. I got to imagine that part of you wants to say, hey, there, there's also some dietary changes that need to be made in support with the, the CPAP machine. Is that happening as well? You know, I think for the most part, everybody who's interested in their long-term health looks at their food intake and their exercise as, you know, real pillars for that. And so whether a person is carrying uh, extra weight or not, that does tend to enter the conversation, particularly because the way that you're sleeping impacts your hunger hormones. It even impacts your food choices. So a person with a normal body mass index, for example, can 
be interested in making better food choices because they understand that highly processed foods or foods that contain a lot of sugar are going to sabotage their long-term health too. So the food discussion is just about universal. I want to dispel the myth that if somebody has obstructive sleep apnea, it's always due to being uh, overweight or even in an obesity category. That's not the case. And, you know, in some ways it's a little unfortunate because in, that would mean that just losing weight would cure sleep apnea. But we don't see that as much as we would if obesity was the uh, sole cause of obstructive sleep apnea. So there's multiple factors going into that. And, you know, I think it's useful to say that to folks who are wondering if their weight is contributing, it likely is, but it may not be the sole factor. You've got anatomical reasons, you've got different tolerances of the neurorespiratory mechanics of breathing. And so all of this goes into the recipe for obstructive sleep apnea. And I always tell people, you know, it's, it's better to get to a healthy weight and maintain that with good lifestyle practices, but their sleep apnea may not resolve if they achieve a healthy weight. So, you know, that, that discussion is frequent and I love having it with people in a very candid way. Absolutely. I, I'm glad you brought that up because that is certainly a, a misnomer, a, a myth that's out there. And I'm glad you dispelled that because that you gave really great information on why that's not true. I had uh, Dr. Mindy Ricksmeyer on the show a couple of months ago. She's a dentist uh, here in the Midwest as well. One of her specialties is around sleep apnea in the sense that uh, she helps with, I believe it's like the jaw. It's the, the biology of your jaw and, and how it sits, for lack of a better word, an apparatus or device mm -hmm. that you can use in your mouth while you sleep that helps bring the jaw forward and open those airways. I'm going to guess when, when you were talking about kind of the, the autonomy of it, there the anatomy of it, I guess that was probably what you were speaking on. There's, it's not just carrying some extra weight, but there could actually be mechanically some things wrong that you could be in, in fantastic health, you know, 5% body fat and, and uh, perfect diet, uh, but you still can have sleep apnea simply because of some of the mechanics of how uh, that all works. Can you talk to that piece of it a little bit? Definitely. And what you're describing is called oral appliance therapy for obstructive sleep apnea. And this is really helpful for people whose tongues play a big role in the severity or even the existence of sleep apnea. So what an oral appliance uh, does is it's a custom-made device that fits on the upper and lower teeth. There's about a hundred of them out there with different styles, but the upper and the lower pieces attach in some way to bring the jaw forward. And the idea is it's pulling the tongue muscle out of the airway space to create more volume for air to pass through. Now, in the past, it was uh, really recommended for people who have mild sleep apnea, but as we've become more familiar with oral appliance therapy, uh, it turns out that there are people with moderate sleep apnea and even some with severe sleep apnea for who this device works. And so of the non-surgical treatments for obstructive sleep apnea, I would say that oral appliance therapy is uh, number two after CPAP in terms of its effectiveness. And so a lot of people uh, go to it if they have not had success with CPAP in order to get their sleep apnea treated. The important thing is that once you're acclimated to the oral appliance treatment, you need to have a sleep study 
with the device in to confirm that it's actually working because the absence of snoring does not mean the absence of sleep apnea. So you want to make sure to do that last step. Wow. You just brought up an excellent point. And I tell people I try to learn something new every day and I just learned it right there. I just figured if you're, if you're snoring loudly, uh, that's probably some type of obstruction. You must have sleep apnea. If the snoring goes away or gets resolved, uh, you no longer have it. So that is, that's really good to know. You brought up one point though, that I was going to ask you about is around sleep studies. So you talked about how early in your career, you noticed that people were not sleeping well in the hospital, which kind of seems counterintuitive. When I think of a sleep study, it kind of make, gives me the goosebumps a little bit. Cause to think that I have to try and get hooked up to all these machines, go, go to someplace that's not my own bed and then sleep and have that monitored and diagnosed seems kind of strange to me. Is that the only way to do it? Or is there other ways to go about that process? Uh, the short answer is yes, there's other ways. But I want to go back to what you just said uh, with a little story about what I was talking about before with, okay. with snoring. And then I'll hit the sleep test question because I think that is a really important one to get to. Mm -hmm. A patient of mine came in because his wife said that he was kicking in bed. And it was a problem because he was kicking her. And in the context of talking to them, what I found out was that she said, when we first got married, which was 40 something years ago, he didn't snore. And then both of us put on weight with the kids. And then he started snoring and he started snoring so loud and I couldn't stand it. So I moved out of the bedroom. This is a very common occurrence. Then they went on a holiday trip and had to sleep in the same bed. And she realized he doesn't snore anymore. So all was well, right? They moved back into the same bedroom at home, but now there was this problem with kicking. Okay. So their idea was he used to snore in the past, but now he doesn't. We can do the sleep study and see what's going on with the kicking, but he's not going to have sleep apnea because there's no snoring. The opposite was true. So what I saw in the sleep study was that he was not snoring because when he had airway collapse, it was total collapse, meaning there was no air moving through his wow. airways. And that's why he wasn't snoring. In fact, he was having apnea or cessation of breathing for 30, 40, 50 seconds at a time. And his brain was waking up toward the end and he was having muscle movements and kicking as a result of trying to wake his, himself up to come out of that apneic event. His blood oxygen levels became undetectable during this time because his apneic events were so long. So I was very sad to report to him that in fact, he did have very severe sleep apnea, which was the source of his kicking trying to keep himself alive, kick himself awake, essentially. So the absence of snoring, this is a, sort of an extreme example, but the absence of snoring does not mean the absence of sleep apnea. Now for testing, there's a couple of options available right now. There's home sleep apnea testing 
and there's in-lab sleep apnea testing. And what you described was an in-lab situation. And believe me, I get it with the apprehension because I've been through four of these tests myself. In fact, every place I've worked, I've gone through a sleep study to see you know, what it's like and what it entails and what it's all about because I wanna convey this to the people that I refer there. So I've been through four sleep studies and for people who don't know, it's about uh, 20 stickers or sensors put on the head. There's a stretchy belt for your chest and your belly. There's a heart monitor. There's a <clears throat> blood oxygen monitor on your finger and there's sensors on your legs. So you're basically wired for sound and there's all there's literally wires coming off. And then you're invited to go to sleep. And of course, of course, it's going to be different than your sleep at home. You're in a different place and you've got all this <laughs> crap on you. And you're kind of feeling wonky too, because the sleep technician who's conducting the study is watching you on a video camera so they can help you. But it's just, it's a totally different experience. The advantage to an in-lab sleep study is that because the brain waves are being monitored, I can factor out all of the wake and just look at sleep. Now that's an objective measure of sleep. So in some regards, an in-lab sleep study is much more accurate compared to a home test. However, home testing has its place. And this is a home sleep apnea test. It's specifically for sleep apnea, nothing else. So if you're interested in kicking and it's not due to sleep apnea, it, you won't find your answer there. But a home test is less expensive, it's more convenient, and it can give you a false negative result. So in the face of symptoms, and a negative home sleep apnea test, my concern would be it's a false negative and the next step would be to have an in-lab sleep study. And unfortunately, this is especially true for women. And as a card-carrying member of the women group, I try to advocate for women especially to get that extra confirmation that you don't have sleep apnea if the home test is negative. Yeah, that is good insight. I, I wouldn't have thought it would be that way. I would think that people would sleep better and you would get a more positive or accurate result in testing someone while they're at their home. But I, I guess I totally understand that if the, the in-lab testing is strictly looking at sleep, it's not the the uncomfortableness beforehand while you're still awake, right? They're, they're not really looking at that. It's it's solely on the, the different levels of sleep. But you, you brought up a good point there uh, as a card carrying member. I'm just gonna tell you something that's gonna blow your mind. A home sleep apnea test does not measure sleep. There's no sensors on your scalp. Oh. There's no EMG to measure the lack of muscle tone during REM sleep. It only measures your breathing really, and it makes a guess at your sleep. But in the way that we know that sleep to measure sleep currently, and I think this will change in the future, but in the way that we know to measure sleep currently, our home sleep apnea tests do not measure sleep. That's good to know. I, I wouldn't have known that. You made a point a second ago about a being a card-carrying member of, of the Women's Society, right? Yeah. Uh, do you typically see more men than women with sleep apnea? Is there a difference there in gender? There is uh, in the way that sleep apnea is currently documented. So overall, sleep is a fairly young field. And even over the last 50 years, there's some places where we're outgrowing some definitions of sleep, 
uh, some definitions of apnea, et cetera. So this is a dynamic field. Historically, the poster child for sleep apnea is a middle-aged man with a big neck and a big belly and kind of having high blood pressure and maybe some diabetes, maybe even risk for heart attack. So that's kind of the poster child for sleep apnea. However, women get this too, and oftentimes uh, it presents differently than the snoring and the tiredness or the sleepiness during the day that men experience. So women tend to describe more feelings of difficulty getting to sleep, difficulty staying asleep, daytime tiredness instead of sleepiness. They tend to be directed more toward insomnia treatment, especially with medications. They are directed toward uh, treatment for anxiety or depression. And I think that the way we understand the two, the sleep from the two genders is going to evolve. Uh, my worry is always that women tend to arouse more when they have an airway obstruction instead of dropping their blood oxygen levels. And the home sleep apnea tests are not so great at detecting that sleep disruption for women, even though it would count on an in-lab sleep study. So currently, for men, about one in three adult men are thought to have obstructive sleep apnea, and about one in five women are thought to have uh, obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, that's across all ages. Once you get past the menopause stage, the risk evens out uh, between men and women. So it's about one in three postmenopausal women have uh, some degree of obstructive sleep apnea. Gotcha. So not, not necessarily a, a difference in gender, more leaning towards age, it sounds like is, is more of a factor. Um, but you made the point earlier of, of more of the un insomnia is, is a better uh, or a higher rate within women, the easily aroused part, which I think is just the old saying, like women just are lighter sleepers. Yeah. And I, we, I think it always got attributed to, Hey, they have kids. So like, you know, most women have kids and, and, they got to be a light sleeper in case something happens to their kid in the middle of the night type of thing. Yeah, I, I think that's sort of common in our culture to explain away mm -hmm. uh, symptoms that women have. You know, I liken it to kind of the revolution that happened in the cardiology world where it was finally recognized that women have heart attack symptoms different than men. They are still having a heart attack but they will describe it differently. They'll experience it differently. They may even seek care differently. And the wise clinician will be aware of that difference and savvy enough to direct them to appropriate testing and appropriate treatment. So, you know, where women's sleep apnea is concerned, I do try to keep my ear a little closer to the ground because it's a really common diagnosis. And so, women need to be tested ultimately. In, in staying in line with females and, and thinking more of the insomnia side of things, and I guess we could talk about males as well, but just what are some of the things that, that you are talking with, with patients in that realm as far as negating some of those symptoms? Is there, you know, melatonin gummies? Is there other treatments kind of like a CPAP, but obviously not because of obstructive uh, sleep apnea, but is there is there things and treatments that you can do uh, from an insomnia standpoint? I think the medical delivery system is not very well set up to handle insomnia either. You know, the first question I always have is, is it true insomnia or is it poor sleep habits 
or even a misalignment in chronotype. So you've probably heard of night owls. You may even be one yourself, you know, sort of staying up later and preferring to wake up later in the morning. And so if you have obligations that happen in the morning that require you to get up at 6 a.m., but your biology won't let you fall asleep until midnight, then that will express as insomnia, even though it's not really something that needs to be treated with medication, you may do better to incorporate some more flexibility in your work schedule, for example. Insomnia oftentimes gets a response of a prescription drug. And the more we know about these Z drugs or even some of the newer insomnia drugs coming out, the more caution is warranted with long-term use of these drugs, which act on the brain. And it makes sense, right? That the brain is what sleeps, so that's where these drugs are working, but there may be consequences if taken chronically. So the number one treatment, the most effective and most durable treatment for insomnia is called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And it's working with a clinician or even a coach to model different ways of thinking, different attitudes and beliefs about sleep that help you to prioritize it and really lock in behaviors during the day that support your sleep at night. And this can look, look like many different ways, but it all starts with the way that your thinking and your beliefs are, are going. That's gonna inform your feelings, that's gonna inform your behavior to go more toward healthy sleep to treat insomnia. Insomnia is really common. Uh, I don't even think we know how common it is because it's very closely tied to stress and people who have certain health conditions or even obesity don't sleep as well as they could. So insomnia is really common in our society and it's something that is just part and parcel with uh, a sleep medicine doctor's practice. But typically, I like to handle this with non-pharmacologic means versus sleep aids. Yeah, what an interesting insight. I would have not have thought of it that way as, as far as it's more of a relationship with sleep than it is just almost like a diagnosis. Like insomnia, may, a lot more people may have insomnia, but if it's stress-induced, having CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, you're giving me flashbacks to my college psychology classes, but, you know, just having a better relationship, understanding the importance of it, creating a habit of getting proper sleep is probably more important than saying, Hey, I'm going to run down to the drugstore and grab some melatonin gummies so that I can fall asleep at 10 o'clock because I have to get up at 6am tomorrow morning for something. I think uh, you read me like a book. I'm very guilty of that. Uh, we talked offline how I'm, I'm definitely a stay up till midnight, but sleep till seven. So I'm like, ah, I get seven hours of sleep now. That's that's got to be pretty good, which then leads me to my next question for you is like, if duration has always been an important factor and, and something that many clinicians and literature has said, you got to get eight hours of sleep. If, if duration is important, is the timing of that duration also important? Does it need to be a 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. or is it okay to be a midnight to 8 a.m. type sleep as long as you're getting the eight hours? Is it okay if I talk to you specifically as I answer this question, just for demonstration purposes? Absolutely. Okay. So it depends a little bit on your, your biological programming. So if you are truly a night owl, then you have an internal mechanism that is going to optimize your sleep a bit later than average. 
Now, most people who are night owls kind of have that friction because of early morning start times. In fact, the world is sort of biased toward early birds who have an early bedtime and an early wake up time. And then there's third birds, which make up the majority of people, about 65% of the population are third birds. So when you describe timing, um, that means where in the 24-hour day are you placing your sleep period? And if you're truly a night owl, then it behooves you to adhere to that and be consistent with that timing. So that's one factor of healthy sleep. You mentioned sleep duration or sleep uh, quantity. Um, people often think of this as an eight-hour target, but I look at it as anywhere from seven to eight hours for an adult. Uh, less than seven hours, particularly in that six to seven-hour range, you're going to start to erode your productivity. Your mood is going to start to be affected. You may not be as creative as you need to be as you're pursuing your entrepreneurial uh, activities. And it's really clear that six hours or less is detrimental to your health, even being risk factors for high blood pressure, blood glucose uh, management. So risk for prediabetes and diabetes, risk for Alzheimer's disease. So less than six hours is toxic. So that is quantity. We talked about quantity and timing. The last one is quality. So you need quality sleep. Part of that means absence of sleep disorders. And so if you're at all suspicious that a sleep disorder is existing, it may be worthwhile to get tested. But it also means like not using your phone before bed, which causes little awakenings during the night and interrupts your sleep cycles. It means getting enough exercise during the day so that that pendulum can swing the other direction at night and you can get deep sleep, restful, rejuvenating sleep. And it means just supporting your sleep environment uh, with noise or monotonous sound uh, to get healthy sleep, to reduce your light exposure at night, to make sure your temperature is on the downslope at night. So all of these things go into quality sleep. Healthy sleep means quality, quantity, and timing. All of those things need to be in the picture to really optimize your rest. That was really good. I'm glad that I uh, agreed for you to have speak directly to my circumstances because that's it's it's really eye opening. And some of the things that you called out the TV or phone before bed, working out or not, I can definitely tell if I work out. Uh, like I was on the Peloton yesterday for a long time, slept great last night. But if I don't work out right? There's, there's not that flip of, okay, you exerted energy during the day, you sleep well at night. Uh, I, I think incorporating some of those things and, and making sure that you create some discipline or a routine of doing these things throughout the day is going to create better quality sleep at night. Uh, I, I think that just kind of reinvigorates me or at least definitely kind of lights a fire to say, hey, everything she just said is very, very accurate. Uh, I need to start incorporating that back into my schedule. You know, I think one thing that is not um, recognized is behavioral change is hard. It's just hard. We kind of fall into these habits and a lot of times we're reactive in our day to different stressors or different obligations. And so pulling all of this together, prioritizing your health above everything else, especially your brain health, 
can be a challenge. This is something that I coach on all the time. It's something that I really emphasize with my patients and try to support them. Behavioral change is difficult. So as much support as you can get for making those positive changes, the better off you'll be. I have a couple more questions for you if you're ready for them. I'm ready. All right. So the big one, I, as I told some, some people in my circles that I was going to have you on today, uh, I just said, hey, what, what's something that you're curious about that you would want to ask a sleep expert on? And there was just a common theme around everyone. I did kind of relate it back to it's all my friends that also have Apple watches like I do. The main question that most people have is if I look at my Apple watch, uh, it talks about sleep stages. You have awake, you have REM, you have core, and you have deep. And you can tell the fluctuation, you know, kind of looks like an EKG uh, yeah. throughout the night. Tell us what's, what's going on during those times and, and how do we create more restful sleep? I know that REM has to go through cycles and then you have a lot of core and deep sleep, but tell me about like what's going on during those cycles and how do we create more of the positive points in those cycles? This is a fantastic question. And I think for anybody who's using a wearable device, a health tracker that includes sleep tracking. This is super relevant. So I want to start off with a, a fundamental concept, which is that when people talk about sleep cycles, it means one cycling through light sleep, deeper sleep, slow wave, deep sleep, that's non-REM three, and then back up to REM or dream sleep. REM stands for rapid eye movement. So that's one sleep cycle. And a sleep cycle in a healthy person with normal sleep repeats every 90 minutes to 120 minutes. So over the course of a normal night, a person would have four or five sleep cycles, which would include those different sleep stages. And at the beginning of the night, you're going to have more slow wave deep sleep where growth hormone is released. That's where the brain is getting flushed uh, with all of the, the metabolites that you've manufactured through the day with your deep thinking, all of that's getting washed out of the brain. So that's in slow wave deep sleep. And then in the second half of the night, you're going to have proportionally more REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep. And that stage is important for some memory. It's important for emotional regulation. So I point this out because a sort of subtext I get sometimes is what stage of sleep is the best? And the answer is they're all important. All of them are important. So when you look at the measurement by a sleep tracker, I want to put it in perspective because we've already talked about an in-lab sleep study where you're having your EEG waves monitored. That's your brain waves. We've talked about a home sleep apnea test, which has fewer monitors, but is still making a guess at your sleep stages. And then we have the wearable sleep trackers. I've got an aura ring here. This is even less information captured. And so it's even more of a guess in terms of what sleep stage you're in. Now that's with current technology. So anyone who's listening to your podcast 10 years from now is gonna have a different experience. So this technology is in its infancy but it's just a guess. Now these sleep trackers are really good at determining when you fell asleep at the beginning of the night and when your final wake up time was. So that has a pretty high fidelity. In the middle, 
we like to say it's about 70% fidelity, so not great. And an example is recently I did a simultaneous test with a sleep study where I was wearing EEG and my aura ring. And I can tell you the aura ring painted a much more terrible picture of my sleep compared to when it was objectively measured. And so this was a head to head test. And it was fascinating to me because every morning I wake up and I look at my aura app because as a sleep nerd, I want to see what it's showing me. And it was encouraging to know that things actually look probably better than what I'm seeing every day. But the sleep trackers are good because they bring sleep into our dialogue, right? Now we're talking more about sleep and we understand that if you have a couple of drinks at night or if you skip your workout that day, your sleep may suffer. And I think they're really good for that. So there is something to be said for the long-term pattern, but I would look for sleep trackers to improve more and more as the years go by. Yeah. Thank you, Audrey, for, for confirming all that. Cause that was, I think those that, that hear that and, and hear that response, uh, are going to think positively about that. Uh, what I'm also hearing is that the sleep tracking on my Apple watch is way better than my wife's aura ring, which she would have argued the other way. So thank you for, <laughs> thank you yeah, for being the, on my side there. Uh, the Apple watch recently made some changes and I haven't tested that out yet, but I, I don't know that it's better. It's different. It, it's different. There's a different ring out there called the Circle Plus ring that I'm really excited about because uh, especially where the blood oxygen level measuring is concerned, it seems to be better, especially in individuals who have darker skin tones. It's more accurate. So this area is changing and I look for it to improve significantly. I think even looking ahead five years, we're going to have some great new stuff. But in summation, though, I mean, even the aura ring, you're saying that even based on that reading, the actual quality of sleep that you're getting is probably better than what the aura ring is pointing out. Not necessarily saying, hey, if you have the aura ring on, it's going to point out that you have bad sleep. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's really just an educated guess as to sleep stages and awakenings and arousals. But the the advantage that these sleep trackers have is that it measures your sleep, Nate, every night, night after night in perpetuity or as long as you're using it. And mm -hmm. when you look at your patterns, you become familiar with that. So then you can say, oh, I didn't sleep so well last night and I skipped my workout. That's probably why. And I think the next day when it comes time to choose your workout or not, you may say, I'm going to do it because I want to sleep well tonight. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, last thing I want to, I want to wrap up with where can folks find you? We, we talked about super sleep MD, uh, which is an online platform. I mentioned in the bio, a wellsmd.com kind of do, do the old self promotion there. I, I want to hear where people can find you so that we can use your expertise in getting better quality sleep. Yeah, that's awesome. I, uh, for people who have sleep apnea, uh, especially obstructive sleep apnea, which is the most common type I'm best uh, found at supersleepmd.com. Uh, I have lots of courses. I have group coaching experiences. And I also host a private Facebook group for people with sleep apnea, whether they use CPAP or some other treatment. So I monitor that and make sure that there's evidence-based decisions going on in there. And then for anybody who's interested in a one-on-one -on -one coaching experience, it's something that I really love to do, especially for high performers or or type A personalities, 
you know, if you're somebody that's looking to squeeze the most out of every day that you're on this earth, but you're not quite there yet, I can be found at awellsmd.com. And uh, we can certainly meet to find out if it's a good match to do a one-on-one -on -one coaching program. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad we, we took some time out of our days to get together and have this conversation. It was very insightful. Uh, people are going to have a lot of aha moments and, and takeaways. Uh, so I look forward to our paths hopefully crossing in the future and wishing you the best in 2024. Thank you so much, Nate. It was a pleasure to talk today.